Hee hee hee. Thank you. Doug's secret place. This radioactivity is coming from Brian Suits on KFI. I would bomb the shit out of him. Dark Secret Place with Brian Suits on KFI. KFI AM 640 more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. And uh, next hour, on this date in 2000, pardon me, on this date in 1918, Manfred von Richthofen was uh, killed, the Red Baron. And I'll tell you, the uh, we'll separate the truth from the legend of the, the legendary Red Baron next hour. Also uh, was a South Korean intelligence service, so the NIS, the National Intelligence Service of South Korea. Were they operating an anti-North Korean propaganda social media network right here in L.A.? Because all of a sudden they took it down. And it looks like they were operating it right here in L.A. But the big news, uh, obviously, is uh, let's see what the New York Times said. North Korea's Kim strikes milder tone on nuclear tests and detainees. Other headlines are things like breakthrough and gave in uh, and things like this. So this th- with the U.S., NORC, and South Korea talks impending just, just about two weeks away, uh, it looks like our it looks like the North Koreans are conceding already, but are they really? And if they are, why would they be doing this? Uh, they did a pretty major concession. Was the acceptance of American troops on the ground in South Korea? This has been a bone of contention, obviously, for decades. Officially, the North Koreans have redeclared war two hundred times in the last twenty years. Every, every time. Uh, the the annual exercises take place. The North Koreans call it an act of war, you know, and the whole thing. Uh, some of the rhetoric has spiked in, in the last decade, uh, coinciding with their uh, gaining of nuclear weapons. But is this really what it appears to be? So but before I rain on anyone's parade, let me just say this. The last five days have been, if, if in fact the North Koreans are willing to put a signature on paper, actually sign a document saying, yay, verily, we accept American troops in the South Korean Peninsula. We will accept, uh, we will begin negotiating a full-on peace treaty, ending formally ending the Korean War, which has been uh, an, an armistice, a ceasefire since 1953, uh, and then go on with the nuclear disarmament. But, but even before these talks happen in May, this has been probably the most significant period between the United States and North Korea, probably in about 30 to 40 years. With uh, the the low point being the seizure of the USS Pueblo in 19, <clears throat> pardon me, 1968, 69, 68. Um, and they still have the Pueblo, uh, but we, you know, got the crew back after about a year. That was the low point. Um you could argue that the sixth nuclear test from last year, the H-bomb that they tested, was another low point. Because, uh, and, and in a way, you could say that that false alarm on Oahu a couple months ago, uh, that was the closest thing to the Cold War in the 50s or 60s that we've had in our lifetimes. And we saw with our own eyes the very real panic and fear on, on the parts of Hawaiians uh, because they were told this is not a, they got text messages that said this is not a drill, that there's an incoming ICBM, and everyone assumed well, it must be North Korean, because it seemed like Trump's rhetoric and Kim's rhetoric were just meeting uh, in a rhetoric singularity or something. And so, so you could argue that maybe that was the low point. But regardless, the developments of the last four days have been the most significant since the collapse of the Soviet Union, easily. Just the one announcement that they would accept, that they would no longer contend that South Korea gets to have friends, that, that South Korea gets to, have, gets to have friends doing sleepovers, which we've been doing since June of 1950, to be honest, in South Korea. Been an extended sleepover. But the North Koreans accepting it is a big deal. Had they done that, that would be justified as a major headline. Did they promise to denuclearize? This is the gap that I'm seeing between the the American media and the facts. 
And uh, only only now, two days after their announcement of canceling tests, uh, are major networks getting around to finally getting experts on the horn or on on the screen about what really the North Koreans announced on Thursday. Did they announce that they were going to denuclearize? They announced that they would stop testing. Uh, but And they released it. The Korean Central News Agency, KCNA, released it because Kim Jong-un said it. He read it in a speech. So I'll read to you what was said. So, in, in, so regardless, if, if you watched MSNBC, Fox, or whoever, and you heard that uh, North Korea, before these negotiations, ha- has already promised to denuclearize, then you are watching a news outlet that apparently can't read either. So you might want to never watch them again. Here's what was said. Quote, First, we solemnly declare that the subcritical nuclear test, the underground nuclear test, the making of a nuclear weapon, and the development of the super-large nuclear weapon and delivery means have been carried out in their course. The party's line of research has been developing the two fronts and putting it on a higher level of technology for mounting nuclear warheads on ballistic rockets has been reliably realized. Second, we will discontinue nuclear testing and intercontinental ballistic rocket test fire from April 21st, 2018, or Juche 107. Of course, as we all know, we're not in the regular timeline with North Korea. North Korea's calendar is a bit different. It starts on the day Kim Il-sung was born, uh, and we are now... In uh, Juche, Juche is the the North Korean way of doing things. We're now in Juche 107. So in North Korea, it's 107. Are you still writing 106 on your checks? Well, get with it. It's Juche 107. Anyway, the northern nuclear test will ground the DPRK, North Korea, will be dismantled to transparently guarantee the discontinuance of the nuclear test. Transparently, by the way, it wasn't mistranslated. The North Koreans actually used the Korean word for transparency and said this will be transparently dismantled, which, which is really, really key. Third, the discontinuance of the nuclear test is an important process for the global disarmament, and the DPRK, North Korea, will join the international desire and efforts for the nuclear test. Fourth, the DPRK will not use nuclear weapons nor transfer nuclear weapons or nuclear technology under any circumstances unless there is nuclear threat and nuclear provocation against the DPRK. Fifth, we will concentrate all the efforts on building a powerful socialist economy and markedly improving the standard of people's living through the mobilization of all human and material resources of the country. Sixth, we will create an international environment that is favorable for the socialist economic construction and the effective dialogue with the neighboring countries and the international community in order to defend peace and stability on the peninsula and the world. Close quote. Bottom line, they don't need to test anymore. That's all this says. Our testing is complete. We are reliably confident that we now have a H-bomb that can fit on our Wasong-15 missile that can reach Washington, D.C. Why would we test anymore? That's what that says. I'll put it in perspective for you a little more when, when we come back and what it means for these negotiations. But uh, the, in, in the American view, in the American media, this is an, even in, in a lot of ways the White House, are, are actually looking at this as something substantial. When, when, in fact, there's not a lot of sizzle to this particular stake. Um, and I'll tell you why when we come back. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian suits in here until midnight. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian suits in here until midnight next hour. The truth versus the myth of the Red Baron dead uh, on this date in 1918. Um, well, so the North Koreans promised to stop nuclear testing as well as uh, ballistic missile testing. Is that a breakthrough or was it entirely expected? Well, the, when Kim Jong-un made the announcement on Korean TV and of course, what's her name? Re whatever, uh, the, the newsreader who is retired, but they trot her out for big announcements. She's the one who made the announcement and they played the video and the whole thing. It's, it sounded like a victory announcement. To be honest with you, it didn't sound like a concession. Of course, Western media analysts who are used to reading news releases read it and they thought it was a concession. But this is sort of the important thing that that you're missing on the American media is that all it was was an announcement that his testing is complete. He doesn't need to test anymore. They know the range of the Wasong 15 ICBM. 
Okay, they, that's why they tested it. They now know what they can do. Um, their tests were, were so scripted and choreographed uh, and so data-rich. Uh, and in this day and age, you can also do tremendous computer simulation as long as you have that baseline. So their computer simulation off of everything they tested has yielded uh, a system of delivery of their nuclear bomb. They, had, they have had six nuclear tests. The last one was the H-bomb. So why would they continue testing? Just for, for some perspective on this, India had six nuclear tests before they began mass producing their H-bomb. China had their sixth nuclear test was an H-bomb. The North Koreans modeled their testing program after the Chinese. Progressively larger A-bombs culminating in a boosted fusion H-bomb weapon. That was the sixth test. After the sixth one, you mass produce it. Or more likely, because you know the sixth one by now, you know it's going to work. The test is not a test. It's a validation because you're already mass producing it. Same with the missiles. Same deal. So, so again, India has six tests. Pakistan did six tests. China did six tests. Israel did either one or none. And everyone knows they've got like 80 warheads, but you're not supposed to say it. <clears throat> uh, the South Africans... Uh, it's expected did one in the South Atlantic Ocean, uh, and they then they abandoned their program. Do you know how many nuclear tests the United States did before we actually operationally used two A-bombs to end World War II? If you said zero, you're wrong. We did one. The first place to get nuked was America. We nuked ourselves before we nuked anyone else. Always Always point that out to your uh, to your uh, liberal friends who who, de who decry that the United States is the only country that ever used nuclear weapons. We nuked ourselves first, July July sixteenth, nineteen forty five, uh, at Trinity Site in uh, New Mexico. President uh, Truman was en route to Pots the Potsdam Conference, yeah, and so he was told, "Yep, the thing works." The red rooster is in the hen house, wink, wink. Um, and so it worked. So we did one test. We did a single test. And it wasn't a combat test. The weapon wasn't dropped from an aircraft. It was suspended on a derrick, on a tower. So it was, it was simulating an airburst. But at the time, the scientists uh, at, at, at White Sands, at, El, at Alamogordo, who were working on the project, they didn't, obviously, they didn't have computers but they had slide rules and the data that they were able to get from that. And the, besides the fact that um, they had projected data up to the actual explosion, when the actual explosion occurred, <clears throat> they were able to adjust their projected data to reality. They were able to close the gap between what should happen and what did happen. Boom. I mean, literally boom. So then they had the data. So they said, all right, uh, this weight, at this concentration, at this altitude, here is the measurable effect of this weapon. And then we used two separate models, the little boy and the fat man. The fat man became the model of future nuclear weapons. Uh, the little boy was the only time we ever shot the pellet of uranium into the basket, and it worked. But we didn't go with that model. So you fast forward to 2018 with the advent of handheld Devices called smartphones that can do more heavy lifting mathematically than a, literally 100 PhDs could do in 10 days. Why do you need any more than six tests? So the, did the North Koreans actually concede anything? Well, well, no. What they did at their end is they announced the completion of a successful program, a parallel program, as you've heard me saying now for a couple of years, a parallel program to master the nuclear weapons and get to a mass producible model that will be an H bomb. And then simultaneously and more, believe it or not, more, more difficult than the nuclear piece was the delivery piece, the ICBM. So now North Korea is a nation full of starving people, but can send a payload to the other side of the world, to the capital of the United States of America, a solid propellant missile from North Korea. So they did it. They have that. And they put it on that missile. They now have a delivery device. They're a nuclear power. That was their announcement. It was the American media that said, oh, he's denuclearizing. Oh, he stopped testing. But I've yet to see now. Come, tomorrow will be 72 hours. I've yet to see anybody on TV say 
Yeah, of course he stopped testing. He wants to save money. He doesn't need to test anymore. But what does this do? Well, effectively, he starts this negotiation with a, what appears to be a concession, but it's not really a concession. He just makes this announcement. We are going to suspend testing and we're going to dismantle our nuclear test range in northeast uh, North Korea at Pungiri. In fact, we're going to dismantle it and you can come watch us dismantle it. Okay, well, whatever. You don't need it anymore. You have your H-bomb. I mean, you literally don't. In fact, it's dangerous. After that H-bomb, there was a false alarm. There was a, uh, there was a collapse. Uh, if you recall that, about a month after the H-bomb, there was a void left under the earth, and it collapsed at Pungiri. And it measured on the Richter scale. It was like a 2.5 in Japan. I mean, there was a you know, serious collapse. And so there's no point in using it anymore. They, they got out of it what they needed. And so, great, whatever, they'll allow U.N. inspectors to come and watch them, like, tow away trailers? Uh, you know, I mean, okay, they're not going to use it anymore. What, what do they mean dismantle it? Are they going to allow us there with Geiger counters and take soil samples and the whole thing? Oh, hell no. No, they're not going to do that. There'd be data there that we could use against them. But it appears... Like they've given us a concession. You know, the reality is that they have not. The reality is this is what happens when you succeed, when your program succeeds and it produces the result you want. In our case, an A-bomb. You stop the program. It's done. You, you, you did it. You made an A-bomb. Now we'll mass produce them and we'll drop two on Japan. You, you don't continue the Manhattan Project. It's done. So why were the North Koreans? Um, so now you're in the know. All right, so what do these negotiations look like? Uh, we'll get to that right after this. Uh, there, there are some surprises that are already leaking out. We'll get to that right after this. It is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here until midnight. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. It is... The Dark Secret Place. Brian sits in here until midnight next hour. The truth versus the myth of the Red Baron dead on this date in 1918. Well, uh, this is what Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, sounded like a couple hours ago. Sounds like a lot of small arms. And uh, if you hear a lot of small arms in a country like Saudi Arabia where not a lot of gunplay going on, uh, most people assume that there must, must be a coup going on, a coup d'etat or something. Uh, and that King Salman was uh, apparently perhaps the target. Uh, here's some more from, a, from another source. Uh, King Salman was actually apparently convoyed to King Khalid International Airport. Which uh, is uh, apparently the plan, I guess. If, <clears throat> if there is an actual coup. So that, that sounds a little more serious. Yeah, this, is, this went on for uh, about an hour and a half. In this video, there's a bunch of Saudi police who are not, they're just smoking and joking. They're just standing around. But the, this gunfire is happening right on the other side of a fence. <laughs> So the king is rushed to the airport and gunfire going on for an hour, hour and a half. It was a drone. What? This is what they say. It's a drone. The official announcement by the Saudi press agency and the royal family is that somebody's toy drone violated the airspace, of the but they were lighting up Riyadh and all that crap goes up. It has to come down. Somewhere, yeah. Remember what happens here on New Year's, <laughs> New Year's Eve. Yeah. Right, and so that's what it sounded. You know what it sounded like? Silmar, there in in Riyadh, um, the Saudis are sticking by that. They're saying that it was a a drone. There were also explosions. Heard. Did they get the drone? They're not <laughs> they saying have little pieces of. It. They're not saying, but there are also explosions. And it's, I mean, you don't throw grenades at a drone. Okay, count down to three. Okay, now throw it. Um, <laughs> throw hard. So the Saudis are sticking with this. And uh, I asked a friend, I have a friend who has, who's within eyesight of the Saudi consulate here in Los Angeles at 1045 Sotel, just west of the 405. 
And he said no unusual activity was happening at the Saudi embassy here in, in L.A. Do they have complete control over social media in Saudi Arabia? Yes. Yeah, and that's yeah, the other thing. Explain it, yeah. Here's the other deal. The Internet never went down, and they never closed airspace over Riyadh. The commercial airliners were flying in, flying out. So so it looks like the Saudis are terrible shots and that they're really, their story might be true. But an hour of... of uh, of gunfire doesn't account for that. And so the other working theory is that there was a coup attempt and it failed. And this is why the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, as he's known, uh, he ain't no dummy. The The Saudis have two separate, now not exactly equal ground forces. They've got the National Guard and the land forces, and that's for a reason. So that the House of Saud always has a loyal force, the National Guard there. Uh, and then just for insurance, Mohammed bin Salman is renting a Pakistani, uh, a very large infantry battalion of Pakistanis who, who, yeah, who what? are in Pakistan. He's literally renting them. He's renting a battalion from the Pakistani army, and he's personally paying them. And they're pretty well trained, aren't they? Yeah, better than the Saudis. Uh, the Saudis have been getting their asses kicked in Yemen by, you know, sandal-wearing uh, tribesmen. And this is the prince that's doing all the... Um modifications yeah. for society or yeah and so it was so the the working theory is that he's stepping on so many toes after imprisoning all the billionaires right. and all that like the co-owner of twitter uh uh i'll 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 tell uh bin talal or i'll the co the part owner of twitter uh after putting him in a hotel for a month until he coughed up a billion dollars and he stepped on a lot of toes but whatever happened the saudi government is still the saudi government mohammed bin salman is still the crown prince, King Salman, is still the king. So if there was a coup attempt, it was a failed coup attempt, which I believe history tells us that a, a, if a coup succeeds, it's called a coup. If it fails, it's, we go with the German word, a putsch. So it must be a putsch. How do you spell that? P-U-T-S-C-H. Like the early, the beer hall putsch, when the Nazis tried to overthrow the Bavarian government and they failed and Hermann Goering was shot in the ass and the whole thing, they call that the, uh, the putsch. If you succeed, it's, it's a coup. I mean, if you fail, it's a putsch. So the uh, North Korean announcement, what does this mean for these upcoming negotiations? Well, know this before we go into it, uh, that there are three American citizens being held by North Korea. And they they all went there uh, as evangelists. And, uh, of course, they were accused of spying and the whole thing. They're in North Korean jails, which is a very bad scene. The good news is they're coming home with Trump. Bad news is they have two more weeks to have the crap kicked out of them. Um, but this is uh, the reason Mike Pompeo, even before he's confirmed as Secretary of State, the reason he went there is to set the conditions of the outcome of these talks. Uh, and the conditions are, well, North Korea says they're going to stop testing. What are you guys going to do? So we have to come up with something because the ball's in our court. But no matter what we come up with, um, everyone's going to be smiles. There's going to be signatures. Uh, and we come home. Trump comes home with those three Americans in Air Force One. Um, but what are we going to give up? Um, not quite sure. I don't know what we can give up because we're not taking American troops out of uh, South Korea. Um, um, we've already denuclearized. We don't have nuclear weapons in South Korea. Couldn't you make the argument that we're getting something out of it because they haven't perfected their missiles nor their nuclear warheads? Well, apparently they have. Because, I mean, we were still testing with, until recently. Um, we're confirming. We're, we're validating. You know that, and and oh, you mean as a show? Uh, yeah, oh, and and oh. and just like the Russians do, and and the North Koreans have felt they feel like you know what we got what we need. We got an ICBM and an H bomb that can go on it. Let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's mass produce this and let's be a nuclear power. And so that's the intent of their announcement. They're saying we're done testing because we got it. So I don't know what we give mm -hmm. up, but but we do know what is scripted is that Trump comes home with those three Americans. So. Uh, all right, what is the progress report? Uh, what is the Assad way of war? And uh, what is, what's happening in Syria now? A week after we blew the crap out of Syria, or at least one building in Damascus, uh, what is happening? Well, Assad's winning, and I'll tell you why right after this. It is a dark secret place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Uh, next hour, a, a really curious situation uh, right here in Los Angeles was the South Korean National Intelligence Service, their equivalent of the CIA, 
running a social media network of North of uh, anti North Korean propaganda because they took it all down last week. And uh, there, there are some watchdog groups asking where the South Korean intelligence, the South Korean CIA, basing a North Korean propaganda, anti-propaganda site uh, right here in L.A. Uh, and, and if so, why? So we'll examine that. Also next hour, the true story of the Red Baron, dead today in 1918, 100 years ago. Well, your progress report on Syria, um, as you'll recall, uh, Friday before last, we shot 103 uh, attack missiles, French, British, and mainly American, into a couple different targets in Syria. One, a chemical weapons dump, and the other, the manufacturing site, we suspect, of the chemical weapons. <clears throat> the uh, team from the Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Warfare, the OPCW, is supposedly in Douma now, the city where this uh, happened some three weeks ago now after being interfered with by the Russians and the whole thing. Uh, what will they find? I don't know. You know, it's really, at this point, it's kind of an afterthought. Uh, what the president said three weeks ago about getting out of Syria quickly is probably not going to happen because special operations um, are rotating troops through there. There is still ISIS to fight. I mean, yeah, they are on their last legs. And just two days ago, the Iraqi Air Force uh hit a target in Syria, uh, an ISIS target that was described as uh, the last headquarters of ISIS. Several thousand fighters are in this pocket in the far east of Syria, and the uh, the Iraqi Air Force uh, doing a, a strike uh, outside their own borders instead of waiting around for us to do it, which is kind of why we gave them F-16s and actually taught them how to use them, so they are doing that. But uh, what about the rest of the civil war and the rest of that in Syria? Well, ISIS is still on the run. Um, the guys that are left are the ones who would prefer to die in place than do anything else. They're not going to surrender. There is a prison in the city of Hasaka in eastern Syria, and it's filled primarily with European ISIS volunteers. We're still trying to figure out what to do with them. But uh, there, there is still a conflict to fight there, and it's chasing uh, ISIS till the end. The Syrian Defense Forces, the, who are the, the Arabs who rallied to us, primarily Sunnis, uh, who wanted to fight against Assad, are still there. And the, the overwhelming majority of people in the Syrian Defense Forces are the Syrian Kurds, who are also fighting the Turks. So, yes, it's just as complex as it was before. But Assad and his Russian backers are making pretty astonishing gains in the last couple of weeks. I mean, not only... Did the chemical strike on Duma actually work and get the uh, the rebels slash Al-Qaeda-linked terrorists to leave? Uh, and then the Syrian army uh, took Duma back. But now in, in another suburb of Damascus, uh, an, a, a very large militant group has agreed and in fact handed over 30 armored vehicles that they had taken from the Syrian army tanks and armored personnel carriers, et cetera, a whole bunch of anti-tank guided missiles, a whole bunch of mortars. I mean, in other words, they surrendered all their heavy weapons. And the deal they clearly made with this, the SAA, the Syrian Arab Army, uh, was we'll let you leave if you leave behind all the heavy weapons. So they gave the Syrians their tanks back, left their anti-tank missiles, the whole thing, and they were allowed to flee, to leave the area, flee the area with their families. They, they were locals. But they had been co-opted by Islamic militants and Al-Qaeda-linked groups, et cetera. And so uh, this is the Assad way of war, is to give them the opportunity to just get the hell out. And so <clears throat> what's happening now in, in Syria, as the war comes to a conclusion, and it'll probably effectively be over by the end of this year, the rebels have three choices. Choice one is die in place, like ISIS. Choice two is... Uh, join the Syrian army again, um, swear allegiance to Assad, stop rebelling. And a lot of groups have done this. Groups that have been fighting for five years and have seen their home villages destroyed by Assad, and they swore they were going uh, to die or overthrow Assad. Uh, only one of two outcomes. Well, they're being offered generous terms, and the generous terms are, I won't kill you, and you will swear allegiance to, uh, to us, and we will continue our fight against ISIS and the Turks. 
Choice three is go north and be part of the uh, overwhelmingly Islamic uh, militant militias that the Turks are backing. Uh, the Turks have have really uh, chosen a, a, a horse that we really, really don't want to be a part of in, in their fight, in their invasion of Syria. The guys that they, uh, that they attracted are ex-ISIS and ex-Al-Qaeda. Um, these were the guys that Turkish intelligence were arming uh, for the past five years, were supporting uh, with uh, reconnaissance against Assad and things like that. Uh, and also these were the guys that were enriching Erdogan in Turkey by sending the oil through Turkey, uh, selling it to Erdogan's son, um, uh, Erdogan's son selling it to the Ukrainians or the Japanese, and Erdogan and his son became billionaires because of this. Well, um, any port in a storm, I guess, right? So the ones that the Turks are backing are guys that we would call al-Qaeda terrorists. So your choice is, number three, go join those guys. So that's how the war is devolving. Um, the, uh, the outcome, uh, it doesn't look like the United States will be getting out this year. But then again, I haven't read Trump's tweets from tomorrow morning. Who knows? Maybe tomorrow morning he has a bad golf round and he decides we're getting out of Syria again. Our stated goal, even though this is not an over, overarching tech, uh, strategy, is to train up the Syrian Kurds uh, and then the Syrian Defense Forces and uh, give them a protective bubble for the next couple of years so that if there is a breakaway Syrian uh, territory east of the Euphrates, then uh, uh, an American-friendly group will be in charge of it. Uh, the Iraqis don't care either way because they're friendly with Assad anyway. Um, the Iraqis are not huge fans of Kurds with guns in general. But the, the good news is that the Iraqi Kurds, primarily the Peshmerga, are not exactly in love with the, uh, the Syrian Kurds either because, by and large, they are, uh, their, their command structure are the, the anti-Turkish PKK communist Kurds from Turkey. So, uh, yes, it's super complex. All right, uh, next hour, the Red Baron and South Korean intelligence right here in Los Angeles. Uh, that and more coming up. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place, hour number two. Brian sits in here until uh, midnight, then weekend coast to coast uh, takes over. Coming up, the uh, today is the 100th anniversary of the death of Manfred von Richthofen, the, uh, the mythological Red Baron, who was a very actual real person, uh, dying at the age of 25. And I'll tell you his uh, remarkable story. Coming up here in a little bit. <clears throat> uh, so something kind of odd happened uh, here in L.A. In, in regards to North Korea and South Korea relations. There were a couple different uh, social media accounts that, that were supposedly nonprofits that were based here in L.A. And they were focused on North Korea. And they generally they were known as the Freedom and Human Rights in North Korea uh, network. They had a uh, they had a homepage on Blogspot. They had a Twitter feed, which, which was FHR underscore NK. They were on Facebook. Uh, they were on Tumblr. A whole bunch of accounts, and they all tracked back to a so-called quote nonprofit organization based in LA. Close quote. And uh, they would put up things like uh, photoshopped. Pictures of Kim Jong-un that were very uh, uncomplimentary. They'd put up caricatures. And I'm, I'm looking at one here where Kim Jong-un is wearing women's underwear. He's got a bra and panties on. And he is holding up a small pair of women's panties marked $33 million in U.S. dollars. And then on his, on his head, he's wearing panties. And he's cross-eyed and he's slobbering. It's a very insulting uh caricature of, of Kim Jong-un and, and one that that plays really, really well in Korean culture where the North Koreans love caricatures and they're they're subject to them all the time. You know, they see them in their party newspapers and the national newspapers in North Korea. They see caricatures of Donald Trump all the time. They saw them of Obama, uh, saw them of George Bush, Clinton, everyone. So 
it's it's something that North Koreans are uh, are are uh, you know available or open to see. They're, the the avenue for that having an impact has already been established by the North Koreans. That's that's the language and the level of their political sophistication in their newspapers. So the South Koreans and and for that matter, uh, U.S. psyops, uh, psychological operations does the same thing. When we were um, floating leaflets into North Korea, oftentimes it was simply a caricature of Kim Jong-il or the founder of North Korea, Kim Il-sung, <clears throat> and there would be a, a quick message, like a one or two sentence message about what are you having for dinner? And there'd be a picture of Kim Jong-il, you know, eating half a pig by himself or something. And, you know, just super simple messages. And that's what that's what these the social network did here in L.A. And there is a <clears throat> another organization, uh, North Korean News, that does investigations um, about um, uh, about North Korean propaganda uh, and things like that. But in this case, they they began checking out the Freedom and Human Rights in North Korea network here in L.A. because. It, it just uh, it didn't quite ring true that this was a grassroots organization sitting there producing uh, all this propaganda. There's another piece that I'm looking at where someone's being there. There's a figure, a skeletal figure, and they're bound at the wrists and the ankles. And then their wrists and ankles are tied together behind their back and they're being hung. And it's a almost skeletal figure. And it's uh, it's um, <clears throat> it's it's. Uh, Overlaid onto a map of North Korea, so that was another piece of their uh, of their artwork. So the so North Korean news began doing an investigation because they suspected that the the organization based here in L.A. was actually a front, and it was funded by the South Korean NIS, the National Intelligence Service, the, the South Korean spy service. And what would be the purpose of the South Korean CIA? You could think of it as. Um, basing uh, such a propaganda outlet in Los Angeles. Well, because the servers were here in L.A., the artwork, everything, all the legwork was being done here in L.A. And so if the North Koreans hacked it or attacked it in some way, they would be, <clears throat> they would be attacking an American entity. Uh, the North Koreans attack South Korea all the time online, and the South Koreans attack North Korea all the time. But by putting it here, the theory goes the South Korean uh, National Intelligence Service was putting it on American soil so that it would be a provocation if the North Koreans ever uh, ever did anything uh, about it. The officially back in March, North Korean News contacted the South Korean Intelligence Service and asked them officially, uh, "Did you financially back uh, or material and content uh, back?" this social media network based in L.A. Uh, the videos, cartoons, and graphics have been distributed between May of 2015 and last month. Um, they were produced to uh, very professional levels in some cases, likely requiring significant financial backing. Some of the videos are very sophisticated. They've all been taken down. Okay, so officially, last month, the National Intelligence Service of South Korea told the, the NK News, again the, again, the North Korean News, is not affiliated in any way with North Korea. It's just a uh, it's a website that's maintained by a bunch of people who do open source intelligence uh, phishing for for North Korea. Um, but the South Korean spy agency said that they had officially no relationship with the H, uh, the FHRNK organization, but refrained from answering specific questions about the network. And again, that's the Freedom and Human Rights in North Korea network. So they didn't they they wouldn't get any more specific, but they just said that they had no relationship. Which, by the way, if you're the CIA or the Mossad or the Russian GRU or whatever, and and you you actually do answer that question, your answer will always be we have no relationship with them whatsoever. Uh, but on Monday earlier this week, one source who requested anonymity due to the sensitivity of remarking on the situation told NK News that there was at least one connection between this social media network and a U.S.-based representative of the South Korean spy service. Uh, the source said, quote, someone I know to be NIS sent three images to me asking that I help circulate them, which I did by sharing them with a group of people, many of whom are concerned about human rights in North Korea and are active in that sphere in the U.S. and Canada. 
close quote. Um, the images were sent by an alleged South Korean NIS officer uh, and were the exact materials uploaded to uh, some of the websites uh, from last year. So anyway, uh, the bottom line on this is that in, in many ways, it's interesting because Los Angeles is a crossroads for a lot of world intelligence gathering, both uh, industrial espionage as well as uh, governmental espionage. And in the case of the South Koreans and North Koreans, L.A. is no different than it is to the Russians and the Chinese. Uh, the Russian GRU, they're very, very active in California, even with the consulate shut down in San Francisco. The Chinese have a different model. They have hundreds of sources in Southern California who are not connected to each other, but as sort of a meta-intelligence gathering network, uh, that's that's how they work. The South Koreans, um, of, of course, they have people here who do two things. They do industrial espionage on the United States, but they also do governmental espionage on the U.S. military and things like that because that's what you do with an ally. We do it to France. France does it to Britain. Britain does it to Canada. Canada does it to us. So, yeah, the South Koreans are here for that reason. But they're also here because they can have that autonomy. They can plant. Uh, they, they can put things on social media uh, through an American IP uh, and, and make it look like they're not really doing it. There's one account still up. It's their Instagram account, and it's Kim Jong-un 6666. So four sixes. Kim Jong-un 6666. That is still up. Maybe someone forgot to take it down or something. But in all likelihood, it was a South Korean intelligence operation being run uh, here in L.A., and, you know, if you're wondering, well, what are they like the Americans? Are they are they illegals, as they say, when you're under complete cover or are they cutouts or whatever? No, they're probably legal immigrants who've emigrated to the United States as families. But like uh, m most Korean men served at some point in the Korean military or the Korean intelligence service and still have a usefulness to the South Korean NIS. Uh, and they're either doing it pro bono or they're actually being paid to do it. Not, not a big surprise. The, the thing that would probably shock a lot of Angelinos here in the City of Angels is that the, uh, the North Koreans are extremely active in Japan, and, yep, they're extremely active here in the Southland. Uh, they, the way they do it uh, is they, they uh, get people South Korean documents, South Korean travel visas, et cetera, and they come here as South Koreans. And in many cases, maybe these guys have not been to North Korea in 10 years. Uh, but they are zealots, and they live here in L.A., and they're trying to acquire dual-use electronics and all kinds of things like that. All right, when we come back, the, uh, the truth behind the Red Baron, dead on this date in 1918. That and more coming up. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until... Midnight at KFI M640, more stimulating talk. KFI M640, more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian suits in here until midnight. On this date in 1918, a man known as the Red Baron was killed. Back in 2009 in Ostrov, uh, actually Ostrov Wielkopolski, a town in Poland, that used to be Prussia, uh, used to be part of the German Empire, a death certificate was found. It was a death certificate of Manfred von Richthofen, but it was misspelled as Richthofen with a V and not an F. Uh, Manfred von Richthofen had briefly been stationed in Ostrov uh, before going to war, as it was, of course, part of Germany until the end of World War I. The document is a one-page, <clears throat> handwritten form in a 1918 registry book of deaths. It states simply that he had, quote, died 21 April 1918 from wounds sustained in combat, close quote. And that is the document noting the death of the man known as the Red Baron. Uh, what happened on that day is disputed to this very day. Uh, who killed him? Uh, was it Australian ground troops? Was it uh, a Canadian fighter pilot by the, by the name of Roy Brown? Uh, my uh, great uncle, my uncle Brick, was in the Royal Flying Corps in World War I. He flew a, a Sopwith pup, and he lost some mates to the Red Baron. And he described to me 
the early days of combat in World War I when they were making it up as they went along. You know, of course, airplanes were in their infancy in 1914 when the war began. Um, the idea of uh, two guys shooting at each other from airplanes was, was thought so absolutely unlikely that airplanes were not even considered to be armed, uh, armed craft. They were purely for reconnaissance. But early on in the war, the two warring sides, the British and French on their side and the Germans on their side, began encountering each other's aircraft so frequently that it was the, uh, the British who began taking hunting rifles up there uh, with them. And there were some early, very surprising victories in the early days of September and uh, October of 1914. So it became fairly clear that an actual dedicated craft that does nothing but shoot down other planes needs to be designed and made. Um, this was done by the British. It was done by the French Newport Company and others. And uh, it was done by uh, the Germans as well. And very soon, within uh, about eight months, there were aircraft that the uh, the two sides had to put their best pilots in because the mission of these aircraft was to down the enemy's reconnaissance aircraft as well as balloons. Um, and this was the infancy of aerial combat. So who is Manfred von Richthofen? Well, Manfred von Richthofen was a, uh, he was a wealthy kid. He was a Junker, as uh, they were called, the, uh, the landed aristocracy of Prussia, who were the backbone of German militarism through the late 1800s, the, uh, the traditions of military service, the tradition of military study, military uh, uh, strategy and tactics as an art form and study, then dedication to life. Uh, we call him the Red Baron. Manfred von Richthofen was actually a Freiherr, uh, a, uh, a, a free man. It, it, an, it was an honorary, a free lord, uh, literally. It was a title of nobility that was the equivalent in England of a baron. You know, there's, there's the earls and the dukes and the barons, etc. There's, a, there's a, 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 a strata to this, and it, it existed in uh, German aristocracy as well. The, the, uh, the Richthofens were uh, were higher than than regular uh, aristocracy with great great holdings, tremendous wealth, etc. So uh, so Manfred von Richthofen was a Freiherr. Um, this is not a given name or strictly a hereditary title, according to Wikipedia, since all male members of the family were entitled to it. So it's not like the oldest son is the Earl of Sandwich, and the second son goes into the Royal Navy. In uh, the German system, everybody, every every son of uh, of of the father was a uh, was a Freiherr. Well, he was born in Kleinburg near Breslau, which is now in Poland, no longer part of uh, Germany. In eighteen ninety two, the prominent aristocratic family. His father was Major Albrecht Philipp Karl Julius Freiherr von Richthofen. His mother was Kunigunda von Schickfuss und Neudorf, also aristocracy. He had one older sister, Ilsa, and then two younger brothers, uh, famously Lothar. Uh, his, uh, his next youngest brother was also a fighter pilot. When he was four, he moved with his family to nearby Schweidnitz, which is now Svidnitsa, Poland. He enjoyed riding horses and hunting as well as gymnastics at school. Uh, he excelled at parallel bars and athletics in general and also was noted to be a genius and an excellent student. He was educated at home. He attended a school at Schweidnitz before beginning his military training, uh, which was, of course, the tradition of the Prussians uh, when you were 11, sort of a, uh, a, a German bar mitzvah. After completing his cadet training in 1911, he joined the Uhlen Cavalry. When World War I broke out, Manfred von Richthofen was on a horse. He was a reconnaissance officer. Uh, whose job was scouting enemy positions, and he did it on the eastern front against the Russians as well as on the western front against the British. But then fate intervened, and I'll tell you what happened right after this. It is a dark secret place telling you the story, the true story of Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron, dead today in 1918, right after this. KFI M640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640 more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian suits in here. The 100th anniversary of the death of the Red Baron. Not actually a Baron, a Freiherr. 
Um, so the war breaks out. Our our man, Manfred von Richthofen, has been training since he was 11 in all the manly arts of Prussian warfare. Those included fencing, which, which by the way, in 1904, 1905, that was still actually a very relevant art, as well as pistol shooting, uh, riding, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, when the war broke out, Richthofen was a cavalry reconnaissance officer on both the eastern and western fronts. According to his biography, he saw action in Russia, France, and Belgium. Uh, however, with the advent of trench warfare making traditional cavalry operations outdated and inefficient, Richthofen's regiment was dismounted. Not disbanded, dismounted, serving as dispatch runners and field telephone operators. This was a common experience across all sides of World War I. Um, the destructive power of the machine gun, uh, as well as the power of howitzers early in the war, made the use of cavalry outdated, obsolete, absolutely. And they learned the hard way. Uh, my own grandfather was in the second Canadian mounted rifles a hundred years ago, uh, parentheses, British Columbia horse, parentheses. They, uh, they got to England and they either uh, trained with rifles or they trained with horses, but they never had the rifles together when they had the horses. When they got to France, uh, they were told that they would go to the trenches without their horses. And they had a ceremony where every man in the battalion, all 800 men, lined up and they threw their spurs into a hole in a field somewhere in France that's never been found. Uh, this was a common experience. The French were the first to realize uh, early in, in the war in 1914, that cavalry was obsolete. This would not be a war of maneuver because that confounded machine gun keeps mowing down the horses and the men on top of it. And so what Richthofen experienced was something that all cavalrymen experienced in World War I, and that was uh, a complete bummer when they found out that they would not be gloriously going into war on the top of a horse. Well, so now our man Richthofen was disappointed and bored um, at not being able to directly participate in combat, because after all, half the point of going to war is to earn honor uh, for your family and, and your country, of course. Uh, the last straw for Manfred von Richthofen was in order to transfer to the, uh, the Imperial Army's supply branch. So he starts the war riding a horse, looking majestic. Now he's going to wind up as a supply puke. His interest in airplanes, however, had been building because he had uh, been examining early aircraft behind German lines, uh, German aircraft, uh, whenever he had a chance. But what you had to do at the time was apply. You had to write down the reasons why you wanted to do it. You had to undergo a physical. Then you had to telegram your dad and your uncle at the War Department, and everyone, and try to get try to get in there because the the air service was uh, it was a refuge for a lot of wealthy cavalrymen, the guys who wised up and went there early. Uh, were dominating the air service, just like the Royal Flying Corps was dominated by TOFs, as they say, by by uh, very wealthy Brits, very class-conscious chaps, as as were the Germans. Um, the application was to die Fliegertruppen der Deutsche Kaiserreich, the uh, Imperial German Army Air Service. Uh, it wasn't known as the Luftwaffe yet. It would later be called the Luftstreitkräfte. Uh, according to legend, Manfred von Richthofen, in his application, wrote, quote, I have not gone to war in order to collect cheese and eggs, but for another purpose, close quote. Everyone was expected to write the reason why they wanted to get into these string bag airplanes with machine guns strapped to them and, uh, and, and fight in the air. Um, th this was uh, not unique. This was, in, in fact, the overwhelming dominant thought, uh, the dominant feeling the people who wanted to fight the war somehow, and you took my horse away, and I'm not going to be a frickin' grunt, because as, as they used to say, uh, as Bismarck said famously, that there is the cavalry, below the cavalry is the cavalry's ass, below the cavalry's ass is the horse, below the horse is the horse poop, below the horse poop is the mud, and below the mud is the infantry. So it, it wasn't like in, in the British Army, in the Royal Army, you, you had to compete to be an infantry officer. Um, and it was the second and third place guys like Winston Churchill who didn't have it academically who wound up in the cavalry. And that's why historically the British cavalry are sort of a bunch of dolts. Um, and in Prussia, it was the opposite. It was the cavalry because you had to be a man of wealth 
because you got to provide your own your own horse. Uh, but now the new cavalry was was in the air. So he writes that um, in 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 spite of what you might call an unmilitary attitude, uh, his re- request was granted. Uh, he joined the flying service at the end of May of 1915. So now we're almost a year into the war. From uh, June to August, he served as an observer on reconnaissance missions over the Eastern Front uh, with the number 69 Flying Squadron. On being transferred uh, back to France, he's believed to have shot down an attacking French aircraft with uh, his observer's machine gun in a tense battle over French lines. He was not credited with the kill since it fell behind Allied lines and therefore could not be confirmed. So at this point, you're saying, well, I don't get it. When do you fly? Uh, when when do you actually learn how to fly in in this uh, in this crappy command? Well, Richthofen had a chance meeting with uh, one of the the first successful German fighter pilots, Oswald Bilke, and it uh, uh, led him to enter training as a pilot in October of 1915. He transferred and he was he was flying, and he had all the sexy gear and the leather jackets and the whole thing. But he was an observer, and it was a natural fit because after all, he was a reconnaissance officer, wasn't he? So why not plop him in front of a plane with a machine gun, but he won't be flying it? Well, he wants to fly. Uh, in February of 1916, Manfred rescued his brother Lothar from the boredom of training troops. Lothar was not even in the war. He was training guys. So he got Lothar uh, to transfer to the the Flieger troops, the flying troops. The following month, Manfred uh, joined a bomber squadron flying a two-seater, the Pilot training was amazingly informal back then. It was for the Royal Flying Corps, uh, and it was for the Germans. Uh, my my great uncle describes when he transferred to the Royal Flying Corps uh, as a Canadian, uh, it it was effectively they threw the manual at him of a, a British aircraft called an SE-5, which was their frontline fighter at the time, and he was expected to memorize the manual by the end of the day which wasn't too hard because the manual was 10 pages long and it included flying instructions and it oriented you to the controls in the cockpit. And the controls were the stick, the throttle, um, a speedometer, no compass, no oil gauges. And then there was a bubble fuel gauge. There was a, a, there was a gauge that was a glass tube connected to the fuel system because the fuel tank was above you on the top wing of your biplane. And when, when the bubble went empty, you didn't have fuel. It was that simple. And effectively it was right. Chaps get in there. Uh, your man will start the engine, advance the throttle to start moving forward. Uh, when you get to the end of the runway, uh, hit the left rudder, head up wind, if you will, uh, push the throttle all the way forward uh, when you start building up speed, you might want to push the stick a bit forward, level the plane out, and then it'll just take off by itself. There was no training about tactics, nothing like that. The Germans were the first to recognize, while the first guys who start writing down common maneuvers and tactics and start teaching it to the young guys, the first side that does this is going to dominate this form of new warfare. And then, oh, by the way, Whoever gets the better machine, whoever gets a technological edge, and this is at a time when fighter technology was advancing literally day by day. Uh, The Germans were the first to have machine guns that could fire through the propellers without shooting up the propeller. The British still had big metal plates that deflected every other bullet. Um, So when the uh, Germans got a technological edge, Manfred von Richthofen finally had the machine that he was in, and the opportunity. And I'll uh, tell you what happened as we finish up the story of the Red Baron dead today in, 2000, pardon me, in 1918. Uh, back right after this, KFI AM 640 more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640 more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian sits here recounting the life and death today 100 years ago of Manfred von Richthofen, the famous Red Baron. Um, now a fighter pilot, it was 17 September 1916 when Richthofen uh, scored his very first air-to-air victory. Uh, he said, quote, I honored the fallen enemy by placing a stone on his beautiful grave, close quote. He contacted a jeweler in Berlin, and he ordered a silver cup with the type of aircraft and the date inscribed on it. <clears throat> and he did that for the next 60 aircraft that he shot down. 
until the wartime shortages of silver uh, made it more and more difficult. And so he, he did that for as a trophy for every, every single aircraft. Um, his brother Lothar was also an excellent tactician and fighter pilot as well. Uh, but what about the flying circus? Well, it was uh, not for a few months <clears throat> when Richthofen, whose leadership was recognized, was given command of a squadron, Yasta 11, uh, with about 18 pilots. And it was at that point that he began painting his aircraft red. Uh, the reason he did it uh, was, you know, keep in mind the British were still camouflaging their aircraft. The French were camouflaging their aircraft. And most of the Germans were camouflaging their aircraft. The aircraft were painted dark earth tones and sometimes with pretty spectacular camouflage patterns. But the, the effect was to camouflage your plane to avoid ground fire and to avoid being seen by the enemy. Well, Richthofen became famous because he began painting his, his aircraft red. He, by the way, he was not flying the three-winged Fokker DR-1, the dry-decker, the, the three-decker, not yet. Only 18 of his 60 victories were in that iconic plane. Most of them were in a mixture of different planes, and he either painted them all red or mostly red. Why did he do that? In his own autobiography, which he wrote when he was wounded with a, with a head wound, he was actually ordered to write an autobiography. He said, quote, for whatever reasons, one fine day I came upon the idea of having my crate painted glaring red. The result was that absolutely everyone could not help but notice my red bird. In fact, my opponents also seemed to be not entirely unaware of it. Uh, close quote. Um, and at that point, the other men in his squadron, including his brother, uh, of course, famously, uh, Hermann Goering, was in the Flying Circus, Ernst Udet, another legendary uh, Luftwaffe fighter pilot and commander of World War II, was in the Flying Circus. They began painting their aircraft in garish colors, but primarily red. And the, the most accepted reason, uh, the stated reason by most of the pilots, uh, including Hermann Goering, was because they had so much adoration for their commander, for von Richthofen, that they wanted to reduce the risk. They didn't want the British uh, singling him out because he was flying the bright red plane with the three wings. So they began garishly painting their aircraft, and hence the term Flying Circus, because when the ground troops saw them, they saw this colorful uh, squadron of German aircraft flying around in bright, bright colors, uh, with the entire point being that they were trying to be seen. Um, he, uh, Richthofen began commanding what was called a big wing at that, uh, a large wing at that point, uh, not just one squadron, but he began commanding a number of squadrons. And normally he would have been advanced in rank. Normally, in with a command that size, he would have been a lieutenant colonel or at least a major. In the British Royal Flying Corps, soon to become the RAF, um, your rank reflected your responsibility. For instance, a captain commands a company. A lieutenant colonel commands a battalion. Uh, and if you're commanding a battalion... You, uh, you should be a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army or the British Army. Where Erwin Rommel, um, uh, infantry commander of World War I, he commanded the battalion as a captain because of some of the traditions. Uh, von Richthofen was commanding a huge amount of aircraft, training pilots, teaching pilots, leading pilots, leading by example. And one of the reasons his, his, men's, his men beloved him was because uh, he, uh, he led everybody into combat. Well, um, in the Prussian system, uh, you were given a responsibility, but you were promoted on schedule. And it would have been way ahead of schedule to promote Richthofen above captain. And then there was another problem, and that is that in the Prussian tradition, in the, the Junker German military aristocracy tradition, you did not exceed your father in rank unless your father was dead or retired. Well, the, uh, the father was a reserve major in, uh, in the German army. And so Manfred could not accept a promotion to major. If he had been offered it, he wouldn't have accepted it. Um, well, all was well and good, unless you were a British or a Canadian or French <clears throat> uh, pilot. And then on uh, this date, on uh, 21 April 1918, he was killed. Richthofen received a fatal wound 
just after 11 a.m. on 21 April 1918 while flying over Morlancourt Ridge near the Somme River. At the time, he was pursuing a Sopwith Camel at very low altitude, piloted by a novice Canadian pilot, not my great uncle. This was piloted by Lieutenant Wilfred Wap May of uh, number 209 Squadron, Royal Air Force. May had just fired on the Red Baron's cousin, Lieutenant Wolfran uh, von Richthofen. On seeing his cousin being attacked, Manfred flew to his rescue and fired on Lieutenant May, causing him to pull away, saving his cousin's life. Richthofen pursued Lieutenant May across the Somme. The Baron was spotted and briefly attacked by uh, another Canadian pilot, uh, the uh, flight commander, Canadian Captain Arthur Roy Brown. Brown had to dive steeply at a very high speed to intervene. Uh, Richthofen turned to avoid this attack and then resumed his pursuit of uh, the uh, the younger Canadian. It was almost certainly during this final stage, according to his bio, uh, that a single British 303 bullet hit Richthofen, damaging his heart and his lungs so severely that it probably caused a quick death. However, in the last seconds of his life, he was able to control the aircraft and actually land uh, with the aircraft intact. Uh, Australian troops, Australian anti-aircraft machine gun troops, uh, got to the aircraft uh, quickly enough. Witnesses Ernest Twycross and Gunner George Ridgway claimed that they got to the the Red Fokker uh, in in and that's F O K K E R, the manufacturer of the of the uh, the the dry decker, the, the aircraft. Each reported various versions of Richthofen's last words, generally including the word uh, kaput. And he probably said, Ish bin kaput, I am dead. Uh, the aircraft was intact, but it was almost immediately taken apart for souvenirs. It was known by everybody in the trenches who they had just shot down, who they had just killed. Word spread through Allied lines that day. The, the Red Baron was infamous from London uh, to Paris. He was beloved. He was a combination of Michael Jordan and Audie Murphy uh, in Germany. It was uh, national mourning in Germany. The Australians provided a military funeral with all military honors, and they made sure the Germans knew this. Uh, and they returned his personal effects and a wreath uh, back to the airfield that it came from because, of course, even though it was World War I and they were gassing each other, the men fighting in the air were still knights of the air. And so Richthofen was, was given a, uh, a hero's funeral by the Allies and, uh, and buried. Uh, that is the true story of Manfred von Richthofen. Uh, by the way, on this date, 1918, after all he had done, 80 kills, the most successful fighter pilot anyone had ever seen until World War II, after all that, he was only 25. We'll be back tomorrow night for Super Hyper Local Sunday. Brian Suits uh, out back at uh, 8 p.m. tomorrow night. Have a good weekend, everybody. Uh, KFI AM640, more stimulating talk.